Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the 11th of November 1920, Westminster Abbey was the scene of the entombment of the unknown warrior, an unidentified British soldier killed on a European battlefield during the First World War. Now, a new novel, The Name Beneath the Stone, imagines the life and war experience of the soldier whose remains lie under the slab of black Belgian marble. In 2011, Sarah Harding asks her dying father Stanley about papers she's discovered, about one Private Daniel Dawkins. In his bed, Stanley had his eyes open and was staring at the ceiling. Sarah walked across the room and sat down beside him. How are you feeling? She asked. He nodded and gave her a weak smile. She gazed at him, her heart racing. Dad, she said. Who was Daniel? Stanley remained completely still. I've found these said Sarah, holding the letters close to Stanley's face. In a file of grannies, she swallowed and took a breath. They're from a man called Daniel. To Joyce. To your mum. Love letters from the trenches. Was he the soldier? Stanley's head stayed facing upwards, but his eyes moved to look at her. He held her gaze for a long while before nodding. Unknown. Unknown soldier. What does that mean, Dad? I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I talk to Robert Newcomb, author of The Name Beneath the Stone, about the novel and what might happen if the identity of the unknown warrior ever came to light. This is Historical Fiction. Robert, thanks for joining us. Hi there, good to meet you. Your novel, The Name Beneath the Stone, starts with this intriguing premise. What would you do if you found out the identity of the unknown warrior whose tomb is in Westminster Abbey? Can you share firstly how the idea for this novel came about? Yeah, we have to go back about 10 or even 12 years when I had the idea. I'd written a couple of novels at this stage and I was looking around for a, a new story and I read an article in The Week, which was originally in the Daily Telegraph, about the burial of the unknown soldier. It was an intriguing story. It captured my imagination. All I really knew about the unknown soldier at that stage was that there was a body in Westminster Abbey. It's often referred to, but I knew very little more than that. And in fact, since I've written the book, talking to people... A lot of people know those bare facts and not much more. Anyway, I did what you might expect. I went on the internet, I looked up the unknown soldier, 
I found out all sorts of information. I went to the Imperial War Museum and I actually watched a video, a clip of the procession through London on November the 11th, 1920. And so I did a certain amount of research and I thought two things. One, this is a really intriguing story in its own right, but two, it is an extraordinary mystery, the great sort of mystery of the 20th century. Who did they bury in Westminster Abbey on Armistice Day, 1920? So that really set me thinking. I then sort of mulled it over for a while. I, I was doing other things at the time. About a year later, someone said to me, how are you getting on with that story of the woman who discovers the identity or thinks she discovers the identity of the unknown soldier in this century? And I said, oh, gosh, was that the story I, I said I was writing? <laughs> I'd completely forgotten that angle. And he said, oh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. That's a great story. And at that moment, I thought, yes, well, I probably had thought of it, but I've now got my story. I can take it from there. So the story of the unknown warrior begins with a clergyman actually out in France. His name's Railton. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yes, that's the sort of the start of the whole story. In fact, that is the prologue to my book. So this padre, David Railton, who sounds an exceptional man. And in fact, I've been in touch with his grandson since I've been writing the book. And Railton was serving on the Western Front. In 1916, he had just buried someone. He went back to his billet uh, near Armontier, and while the other officers were playing a game of cards, he went into the garden of the billet and came across a cross. It was a small garden, walled, surrounding the house on all sides, and having completed a circuit, he decided on a second. It was then that something caught his eye, a wooden stake driven into the ground over in a corner, half hidden by weeds. He walked towards it and crouched down. It was not just a stake. It was a cross, and someone had carved an inscription at its top. Railton rubbed away some dirt, and, moving close in the fading light, read the words, An unknown soldier of the Black Watch. He stayed squatting until his legs began to ache, and then slowly he stood up. He shook his head and his thoughts turned back to the funeral service he had led earlier, then to all the other burials he had conducted in his time as a padre at the front line. He, he wondered how many more there were, like this one, whose names were not known, whose deaths would never be recorded, and whose families would never know the circumstances of their loved one's final moments. Railton went to his room, picked up his diary, and paused for a moment. Then he began writing. Wednesday, the 16th of May, 1916. I found a grave in the garden of my billet today. On the wooden cross, a fellow soldier had written, An unknown soldier of the Black Watch. He paused again holding his pen in mid-air before beginning a new paragraph. How that grave caused me to think. But who was he? And who were his parents? What can I do to ease the pain of the father, mother, brother, sister, sweetheart, wife and friend? All these people needed something to grieve. They needed a coffin, 
a service, a funeral. They needed to watch a box being lowered into the ground, and to dare to believe it was their son, or lover, being buried. Just to give you an idea, the Menang Gate Memorial at Ypres has fifty-five thousand names of unknown soldiers on it. Um, the Thiepval Memorial at the Somme has seventy-two thousand. So there were thousands and thousands of men who died. And the people at home, all they'd had was your husband or your son, or they would hear about friends. All they would hear was been missing in action. So they had no body, they had no funeral, they had nothing. All they knew that their loved one had gone missing. And Railton just was consumed by this idea. And he thought, what can we do for everyone back home who are in this terrible situation of not knowing what happened? And he came up with the idea, we need to take a body back to the UK and bury it to represent all those unknowns. And that was in 1916. So you've created a scenario where a woman living in the present day discovers from her father on his deathbed that her grandfather may not have been the person she thought he was and he may have actually been a Tommy who was killed in Ypres. And then her father whispers to her unknown soldier and she begins to unpick this mystery that perhaps the body in the tomb of the unknown warrior is her real grandfather. How did that scenario come to you? Well, I played around with a lot of ideas. And of course, there was a lot of sort of mystery and sort of conspiracy theories surrounding who is the unknown soldier. Nobody knew. But I came across from my research, what I thought was a way that someone might have known. And so yes, as you say, in 2011, this woman, Sarah Harding, her father's dying. She discovers letters from a soldier called Daniel writing from the trenches to her grandmother, Joyce. She's never seen these before. No one's ever mentioned the name Daniel, but she's aware that her grandfather, Peter Harding, married Joyce after her father, if you can follow me, Stanley, was born. So she immediately puts two and two together and thinks, the soldier Daniel writing to my grandmother is probably my real grandfather. So immediately that sets her off thinking. But as you say, when she speaks to her father, who is dying at this point, all he can whisper to her are these two words, unknown and soldier. And she doesn't know what that means. She thinks, oh, you're referring to this man who is an unknown soldier. Yes, none of us knew about him. But that then sets her off on an inquiry and she elicits the help of a historian called James Marchant. And as they discover more and more about this soldier, Daniel, who is called Daniel Dawkins, so they also, and it's not the main line of their inquiry, but they keep coming across information that suggests this man might well be the one who they buried in Westminster Abbey. You mentioned conspiracy theories. Has there always been speculation about whose remains might actually be in the tomb of the unknown warrior? Yes, there was tremendous speculation at the time. Just a little bit of the history of it. Railton, uh, he wrote to Field Marshal Haig during the war, got no reply. He then sat on his idea until 1920. It went through the Dean of Westminster, then it went to the King and Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, and the idea was only fully taken up in October 
1920, two years after the end of the war. They then decided that the burial would be on Armistice Day, which is on November the 11th. So they only had about three weeks in which to organise this and get a body. So everything was pretty rushed. And subsequently, a lot of people thought, how did they get this body? Who was it that they buried? And there was speculation it was Jack Kipling, Kipling's son. There was speculation it was a member of the royal family. All sorts of people badgered those involved to say, is that my son? You can imagine the whole idea of the thing was that anyone who'd lost their son or their husband or whatever in the battles up to that point in the war might think that is my son there. So that all sorts of theories went round at the time. They probably sort of died off subsequently. But yes, a lot of speculation as to who the unknown soldier was. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the novel raises the idea that the revelation of the unknown warrior's true identity could damage the establishment. Do you think that's really the case? Well, I certainly speculate that that would be the case. It is an iconic symbol, that the tomb of the unknown warrior. You know, presidents come and lay a wreath there. I've got a photograph of President Obama laying a wreath on the tomb. Nobody ever walks over the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. They walk over kings and queens, but nobody walks over the tomb of the unknown warrior. So it's got this, it's almost sort of mythical feeling about it. And there are unknown soldiers in many other countries now, of course. And one was buried in France on the same day as our unknown soldier. But if you think that we got the centenary coming up this year, in November the 11th, I'm sure there will be an enormous amount made of that. And if someone said, I now know who the unknown soldier is, um, the whole pack of cards would come crumbling down. The whole point of it all is that nobody knows who that is. If someone came forward and said, I know who the unknown soldier is, I think people would be pretty unamused. In my book, at one point, I actually had James Marchant being visited by members of the special services and uh, being leaned on quite heavily, but people told me that was a bit unrealistic. But I think there would be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth if uh, someone did say they knew who it was. So in the book, you have three time frames running in parallel. There's the 1917 story of Private Daniel Dawkins fighting in the trenches, then the 1920 story of Captain Peter Harding, who's tasked with the secret mission to find a body of an unidentified British soldiers in Flanders to be sent home to become the unknown warrior. And then there's this modern-day story of Sarah Harding finding Daniel's letters and Peter's diaries. How did you set about structuring the novel and weaving the various narratives together? With great difficulty, to be honest. So I came up with this idea of those three elements said the first element is the modern day one of Sarah Harding and James Marchant thinking they've discovered the identity of the unknown soldier. I then very much wanted to write 
the story of that soldier, Daniel Dawkins. So we see him in the trenches. We see him alongside his mates, his young officer who's just joined them, Lieutenant Latham. And we see them fighting at Messines Ridge and Passchendaele. So I wanted to fit in that story. And in fact, that's almost the main story of the book. And at one point, the book was actually called Daniel Dawkins. So I needed to get that in. And then the third element, and I don't want to give away too much of the story, but they needed a body to bury. So four teams were sent out to different battlefields. And in some accounts, it's six teams, but certainly General Wyatt's report, there were four teams, were sent out to dig up a body... And that body must be unmistakably British, but having no means of identification as to who the individual was. And those bodies were brought to a village called saint paul sur tournoise They were laid out in a row. General Wyatt chose one. He didn't know where they'd come from. That was the body that went back and was buried in Westminster Abbey. So the third element of the story is this chap, Captain Harding, who led one of those teams. And we follow the story all the way through from that day onwards for him, all the way up to his death, in fact. You draw a very vivid picture of life in the army and the kind of camaraderie and banter that goes on between soldiers. And you yourself served as an officer in the light infantry. Did that experience inform your writing about life in the army and the kinds of characters you've created? Yes, It was a while ago I served in the army, but the thing that I think I was able to bring to the novel was the relationship between a young officer and the soldiers. I was in the infantry, as you say, I was a platoon commander, and you got these extraordinary characters, some pretty robust characters. And I discovered quite quickly, being a young man of probably 19 or 20 commanding soldiers in Northern Ireland that you relied very heavily on your experienced soldiers. So, yes, I think the sort of the dialogue that goes on between the officer and the soldiers and the banter of the soldiers is something that I was able to draw upon. I obviously had to do a lot of research into, you know, the various battles they fought. One source for me was a book by Frederick Mannings, and it's called Her Private's We. Frederick Manning actually served in the British Army, mainly in the Somme, and a number of years after the war, he wrote about his experience. And it's a brilliant book. Ernest Hemingway wrote the finest and noblest book of men in war and said he would read it every year. And I got a lot of the atmosphere from that book, if I'm honest. A lot of that book is not actually in the front line. It's set in reserve. And quite a bit of my book is what goes on away from the front line. But when you get to the front line, then the horrific scenes, the things they had to go through, that informed me when I was writing the battle scenes. We've mentioned the clergyman Railton. I wonder when you include real characters in a narrative, does it create a dilemma for you as a writer about perhaps creating a persona which may come to be accepted as an authentic depiction of someone who really lived? Yes. Railton appears in the prologue, He appears right at the end, and he appears at various moments throughout the book. And I was very conscious of the fact that a certain amount of what I wrote about him was fact, but a certain amount, I actually made up conversations he had with some of my main protagonists. I was nervous about that, so that's, in fact, how I managed to get in touch with 
His grandson, David Railton, who's very kindly said, I really enjoyed the book and I sort of give you my blessing. And I think he was quite relieved at the ending as well. Again, without giving away too much. So yes, fitting that in. And then all the generals who appear in the book and all the facts and the figures I tried to weave in as I went through. I would say one thing, I became very conscious that certainly my knowledge of the First World War was partly made up of things like the film, Oh, What a Lovely War, Blackadder, all these programs, you know, General Melchett, lions led by donkeys, all that. So I very much, you know, had this image of these idiot generals leading these marvellous troops into slaughter. But certainly some of the more modern historians I read sort of questioned that and said, yes, some enormous mistakes were made. And, you know, there was some pretty major pig-headedness, but there were some very good generals who were trying very hard in impossible circumstances to improve their tactics throughout the war. So I try and reflect that. And Messines Ridge is a good example of where the tactics they were trying worked extremely well. What do you think the appeal is in imagining historical events in the form of a novel? Do you think it somehow illuminates history in a way that makes it more accessible? I think that's possibly true. I think a lot of people probably don't read heavyweight history books, but a lot of people do read novels. A number of people who've read this book have said to me that, you know, they thoroughly enjoyed it and Page Turner and all that sort of stuff. But they said one of the things they really found interesting about it was learning about the unknown soldier, which they knew nothing about. So through reading fiction, through reading a book that hopefully engages you, for a lot of people, will inform you about the historical events that took place. Really, that's what I tried to achieve in the book. Now, you spent some years in management with John Lewis and as a management trainer. What prompted you to turn to writing fiction? I've always written. From my school days, I suppose, I would write little short stories and such like. I was at University of Exeter and I studied political philosophy... And uh, while I was there, I read Hobbes's Leviathan. It's all about the state of nature. And I went to university having served in the army, so I did a short service commission. And at that point, I thought, Hobbes's Leviathan, this state of nature, mixed in with my experiences in Northern Ireland, I can weave those two together. So I wrote a book at that point. It was never published, although it's available on Kindle. And that just set me going. And it was a hobby for many years. I wrote that and I've written a couple of other things. And I think, like many people, writing's in my bones. It's something I love doing, you know, in the evening or when I was working with a place like John Lewis. But more recently, I've devoted more time to writing. And so The Name Beneath the Stone is sort of me almost moving into full-time writing. I love it. Has any other historical story caught your attention that's now prompting you to write another novel? Well, interestingly enough, just before my conversation with you, I was working on the next novel. My grandfather was a man called General Scobie, and he commanded the British Army in Greece in 1944, at the end of the war, when the British Army became very much involved in the civil war that was just beginning to take place between the, the, the communists and what they refer to as the monarcho-fascists. We go to Greece quite a lot, and I was in Greece a couple of years ago, and we were the Greek family, and my wife mentioned uh, General Scobie. 
and was my grandfather. And they rushed forward and hugged me. And, you know, I was a hero. I could do no wrong with them. So a while later, I was in a cafe and I thought, well, this is a, a good way of getting a free cup of coffee. So I chatted to the cafe owner and, and I said, yes, well, my grandfather was General Scobie. And he looked at me and he said, that is very unfortunate. And so I could see there are the two sides to this day who see those who see him as a hero who saved the country from communism and those who think he was an imperialist who led the British troops against the will of the people. So there's a fascinating story in there. So I've just begun writing that at the moment. We've just had the 75th anniversary of VE Day. And as you say, it's the 100th anniversary later this year of the instalment of the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior. Why do you think these two world wars have cast such a long shadow over the century that followed? And also, do you think we've learned any lessons from them? It's always the big question, hasn't we? Have we learnt from history? And I remember when reading about the First World War, before the First World War, everyone was thinking, we've seen the end of wars. You know, we've got these stable countries throughout Europe, and then suddenly things just started escalating, and we were in this enormous war. So I personally think we learn lessons and then we forget them. It was clearly a horrific period, those two world wars, We've never known anything similar. I haven't in my lifetime. Of course, what we're going through at the moment is an extraordinary circumstance. You've got to remember, of course, that the Spanish flu hit straight after the First World War. So the circumstances they were going through in 1920, when the burial of the unknown soldier took place, the country was actually on its knees at that point. But I'd like to think we've learned our lessons, but I suspect that we've forgotten them as well. Robert, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Historical fiction. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.